Britain recently announced that South Africa will remain on its red list for the foreseeable future. This means that South Africans are banned from the United Kingdom. Only British and Irish nationals and those with UK residence permits will be allowed into the country when travelling from South Africa and will then be subjected to a 10-day mandatory quarantine at their own expense, even if they are fully vaccinated. So what impact is this going to have on the tourism sector and our beleaguered economy? And is a diplomatic row brewing between South Africa and the UK as a result? This is no ordinary Wednesday. It's an in-depth look at the events and trends that are moving the market, shaping the economy and changing the game. I'm Jeremy Max. We'll start today's episode with the Chief Executive Officer of the Tourism Business Council of South Africa, Chifiwa Chibengwa, talking about the impact of the continued British travel ban. Then, staying with travel, we'll take a look at how the aviation industry is holding up in the face of lockdowns and travel bans. I'll talk to Investec Aviation Finance Head for Africa, Bradley Gordon, about how far the industry still needs to climb before reaching a comfortable cruising altitude. And then we'll wrap it up with this week's burning question, one that's dominated global headlines and has markets worried. Chinese property giant Evergrande's debt. If the company were to fail, the shock to China's financial system could be felt throughout the entire region and even across the global economy. I'll ask Investec UK chief economist Phil Shaw just how worried investors should be. This is No Ordinary Wednesday, and let's start right here at home. South African officials are reportedly meeting imminently with UK scientists over Britain's decision to keep the country on its red list. South Africa has argued that due to a decrease in COVID-19 numbers, an accelerated vaccination program, and efforts to prevent the spread of the virus, there is no logical reason to keep the country on the list. Let's welcome as our first guest, Chifiwa Chivengwa, the Chief Executive Officer of the Tourism Business Council of South Africa. In the year before the pandemic struck, if I've got my numbers right, almost a half a million people visited South Africa from the United Kingdom. With these tourists largely absent from our shores, no real sign of them returning. My first question to you is just how dire is the prospect for the tourism sectors and the estimated 670,000 people that it employs? What's your assessment? Well, the situation at the moment uh, is quite dire and the numbers that you've pointed out uh, coming from from the UK, uh, you know, shows that, uh, you know, the situation uh, is not uh, any better than uh, some few months back. Uh, I think it's important to note that uh, the UK is uh, our top source markets here in South Africa, outside of the African continent. It brings in a lot of people for various reasons. There are people who come here for leisure purposes. There are people who come here for, to visit friends and relatives, investments, businesses, and many other reasons for them to travel to South Africa. So the UK, for us, represents a whole lot more. And uh, if you look at uh, how much we lose per week when the UK market has closed or put South Africa on a red list and has this quarantine requirement for those that travel to South Africa, we lose around 181 million rand every week that we are on the red list. So it is an important market for us. There's a lot of historical ties. And if you look at the numbers of people, you know, that are beneficiaries of the UK tourists, uh, they, they are huge. And we believe that if we reopen this market now, uh, we should be able to get uh, you know, an excess of probably around 100,000 people back to work. 
because we believe that there's pent up demand. A lot of people want to come to South Africa and uh, it's going to be cold in the Northern Hemisphere. So they want to come and have a sunny holiday or sunny Christmas. And we are the destination that's uniquely positioned for that, especially in the absence of Australia being open and New Zealand being open. We stand to benefit from that. And that is why we need to get our act together and ensure that uh, you know the UK tourists are able to come to South Africa. That loss per week figure is absolutely phenomenal. So let's talk a little bit about recovery then. Firstly, what specific concerns have been raised by the UK to support this decision? And as far as you're concerned, the Tourism Business Council, would these concerns be justified? Well, the UK have raised concerns uh, around the beta variant you know, that uh, used to be present in the country. Uh, and it looks like they um, were not updated in terms of the, the fact that the beta variant has not been sequenced, uh, you know, for the whole of September, meaning that uh, it's completely uh, sort of out of the picture and the Delta variant is in the picture. So that was one big thing that they cited that, uh, you know, made them to make a decision in this fashion in terms of leaving South Africa, you know, on the red list. So for us, you know, as a tourism business council, we've said that, no, you are following the wrong science. The beta variant is no longer present. We have been presenting these facts uh, to a lot of UK media and a lot of parliamentarians to say, well, you've got to look at things differently. And uh, the fact that we are far advanced than many countries that have been removed from the red list in terms of sequencing and reporting those sequencing of the virus, you know, should count for something. So their reasoning what was the beta variant, and we're saying that that should not be the reasoning uh, because the beta variant is not here. They, then some of them cited the whole issue around the, the rate of vaccination or the fact that we started vaccinating late. And we do know that there are others uh, that just look at us as an African country uh, that cannot do any good. But we have proven over and over again in terms of the management of this pandemic that uh, we are a country that is far advanced uh, in terms of uh, you know, our community health, how we respond to, respond to the pandemic and many other health issues in the country. Yes, we do have you know, a challenge, but our challenge is not far greater than many other countries that are removed from the red list. So we don't believe that uh, you know, the beta variant uh, should be cited as a reason for South Africa to remain on the red list uh, we believe that, uh, you know, they need to give us a more sound reason. And we have pushed government, our own government here in South Africa. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, to say they must talk to their counterparts in the UK and try to solve this issue because we, it's, it's not true. And we've met with the scientists here, local scientists who give us, uh, you know, information all the time. So their reason is that our reason is different to, to their reason. And uh, as much as we, we are a tourism business council of South Africa, our reasoning is anchored on the information that we receive from the local South African scientists. So what I'm hearing is a lot of dialogue between yourselves and the South African government, and I'm assuming that you're also talking to your counterparts in the United Kingdom to lobby for a solution. You've in fact confirmed that you are. What, what sort of response then are you getting in that respect? Are your pleas falling on deaf ears? Well, I think that our own government here in South Africa acted very late in terms of you know, engaging with the UK government uh, and the world at large in terms of how we're doing uh, in terms of managing the pandemic. And this goes with, you know, managing brand South Africa, so to speak. Uh, if we don't communicate outward to the world and we're always talking to our own people, 
the world will make its own assumptions and uh, you will get the situation that we're seeing now with the UK. So we needed to talk more as South African government to, to deal with this issue. From the private sector side, we have been communicating with our counterparts. We are all on the same page, but this type of communications and this, this type of lobbying cannot only be done by the private sector to private sector. It, it's, it's, it, that's why it requires bilateral talks. It requires that uh, we follow you know, the World Health Organization regulations. Uh, it requires that there has to be a communication, which is key for me, communication from South African Department of Health in terms of how are we managing this pandemic? How are we managing the different variants? What is the situation on the ground? We needed to talk through the international media platforms, other platforms, social media, and, and many others to make sure that the world sees that uh, we are managing this effectively. We didn't do that. Uh, we have seen this also with the riots that we had. Uh, you know, our communication was poor. Uh, we, we sort of tend to, to defend ourselves instead of being proactive and talk about what we're doing that is good in the country and also to push positive messages you know, across the board. If you look at other countries that have been removed, they don't have any better situation than us. In fact, some of them have higher numbers of infection than South Africa at the moment. And uh, yet... We, are, we still remain on the red list. Communication and effective communication is key. And I believe that governments uh, acted very late. Had they acted early enough, we should have uh, had the different results by now. But we do hope that uh, with the meetings that are happening now, we sort this situation once and for all. And the consequence of inaction or inertia, as you've rightly pointed out to us, is very expensive. Let's park the United Kingdom for the moment and let's talk a little bit about other uh, countries, um, Germany, other European countries, the United States, stating that it will allow South Africans to visit soon. So in that respect, then, how likely are we to see a longer term change in the orientation of tourism marketing as a result? The, the paradigm is shifting, I'm assuming. Well, it is shifting. Uh, and, and, and we're grateful for countries like Germany that have looked at the science uh, the same way the whole world looked at the science other than the UK, and the same uh, with the United States looking at science differently. Canada did the same. The Netherlands is, uh, did the same. Uh, so you, you're quite right. You know, the paradigm in terms of how we market and who is willing to come to South Africa may change. Uh, you know, and if, I, if I give some numbers, if you look at the United States uh, and, and, and Germany, they are our second and third market uh, in terms of coming to South Africa. Um, we have seen that the United States is, 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 is a bit more resilient. We have seen the United Airlines, uh, you know, coming back into Johannesburg. We've seen the Delta Airlines coming back. Um, it means that uh, there is demand and people want to get out. And many people have been vaccinated and they should be able to get out. You know, and that market alone, we, we're barely scratching the surface in terms of outbound out of the U.S. to many different countries. We hardly get, uh, you know, 1%. We, we, we're far from 1%, let me put it that way. The same applies with the likes of Germany and many other countries that, uh, you know, we trade with. We hardly get a, a percentage of the travelers that are getting out of that country. So for us, the opportunity is huge. Uh, and we just need to make sure that when we go to these markets, we put the right messaging, the right images, and we make sure that we convert and make sure that people arrive here in South Africa. Airlift is going to be critical. Uh, that's why I talk about 
the United States, when you start to see United, uh, you know, coming in, Delta coming in. South African Airways uh, was uh, one of the major carriers between, uh, you know, North, North America to, to South Africa with, uh, you know, New York route and the Washington DC route. We need those routes to come back because we believe that a lot of people want to travel. If you look at Europe, uh, you know, you still have Germany, Lufthansa wants to come back. Uh, KLM from the Netherlands wants to come back. I'm sure British Airways wants to come back. Virgin uh, wants to come back. But we need to make sure that there's demand. We need to deal with these issues uh, in terms of quarantine to make sure that people are able to travel in and they're able to travel out. And also for us here in South Africa, we need to deal with the policy issue because we still need everyone who comes here to have the PCR test that is valid for not less than 72 hours. It means that those that are vaccinated have to go and get COVID test. Well, one can argue that, uh, you know, that's a good thing. But if there are other countries in the world that are saying, as long as you are vaccinated, you should be able to travel to those particular countries. Tourists are most likely going to choose those, tra- those countries that are easy to travel to. And if they can get the sun and the safari, I bet you it's, we're going to be in competition. It's already started with Kenya being removed from the red list. Kenya will get those tourists from the U.S., from Germany, from other places that want to go to a place where it's easier for them to travel to. So we've got to get ourselves organized. And we've been arguing this point as a private sector to say, we need to simplify our regulations and we need to make sure that we recognize that those that are vaccinated uh, pose no risk to, 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 to anyone and to themselves. Although there may be a little bit of risk, but we know that in the chances of that they're not going to end up in hospital. So we need to do that to make sure that the U.S. citizens come in uh, in larger numbers. I think that market presents a huge opportunity other European markets present a huge opportunity, uh, but the U.S. has a larger population. And China as well has a, a lot more people that are willing to travel out of China. We need to focus on that as well. And that's where we are going to leave it. Uh, Chifiwa Chivengwa, thank you very much indeed for a very honest and uh, blunt assessment as far as this issue is concerned. Chief Executive Officer of the Tourism Business Council of South Africa, I appreciate your time on No Ordinary Wednesday. In just a moment, we'll talk to Investec Aviation Finance Head for Africa, Bradley Gordon, about one of the industries hardest hit by the pandemic. But first, a reminder that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please rate us. Bradley Gordon, we've just heard from the Tourism Business Council of South Africa about the dire consequences of the UK travel ban to our travel and tourism sector. But the aviation industry, I'd contend, has seen more than its own fair share of turbulence. With constant lockdowns, travel bans, we've seen many airlines that have been grounded. So let's start with this, if we can. Are we starting to see any signs of a sustained recovery? Hi, Jeremy. Thanks very much for having me. Yes, we're definitely starting to see the green shoots of recovery for the aviation industry in South Africa. Comair and Lyft have both recommenced operations following temporary suspensions during the third wave. And SAA have also recommenced flying for the first time since the pandemic began. We're starting to see some encouraging trends of South African airlines starting new routes, such as Airlink's recent launch to Entebbe and Flysafe commencing flying to Bloemfontein. In addition, following a gradual easing of cross-border restrictions on travel to South Africa from countries such as France, Ireland, the USA and the UAE, a number of international airlines that have been absent from South Africa since the early days of the pandemic have started to return, such as Emirates, Virgin Atlantic and Delta. This follows an improving global trend where domestic travel within the US is back to about 80% of 2019 levels, 
and a resurgence in inter-European travel through their summer. And we're seeing that back at about 75% of 2019 levels. What we see is a common trend throughout the world that when border restrictions are dialed back and case numbers are low or vaccination rates are high, there's a significant amount of pent-up demand for air travel. The biggest threat to sustained recovery remains red listing in major markets such as the UK, as well as the ongoing possibility of a fourth wave over the key December holiday season and that bringing associated lockdowns and restrictions. I want to return to the lockdown and the impact on South African travellers in just a moment, but you'll agree with me, Bradley Gordon, that it's now incumbent upon people in the aviation sector to start looking to the future. We've just emerged from a third wave or are emerging from it. So I wonder if aviation professionals now have a clearer picture, perhaps, of how the lockdown really impacted the sector, clear enough at least to make reasonable forecasts and maybe give them an opportunity to take decisions with just a little more confidence. Yes, Jeremy, I think if we if we have a look at the main reasons that people travel, these are predominantly leisure, tourism, event-driven travel, business travel, and visiting friends and relatives. So if you look at the impact that lockdowns have had on each of these uh, causes for travel, leisure travel tends to be across provincial borders and is impacted by things like curfew, beach bans, liquor sales, Live sporting events which are, and other forms of entertainment are largely prohibited or with severe restrictions. Business travel is heavily prohibited by many com- companies. And visiting friends and relatives is often done in conjunction with events such as weddings or birthday parties, which are also susceptible to bans on gatherings. So if you have a look at this in April and May, which was a period of lower case numbers at the end of the second wave, air travel had very much begun to stabilize at around 60% to 70% of pre-COVID flight levels. However, when adjusted level four was implemented at the end of June in 2021, with a resulting ban on interprovincial level travel, leisure travel in Gauteng and a ban of gatherings, there was a huge impact on this recovery. These restrictions and the subsequent actions from airlines caused domestic air movements to drop from the 63% that they were in June to just 35% of 2019 levels in July 2021. Airlines such as Comair temporarily suspended operations for seven weeks and Lyft temporarily suspended operations for four weeks. And in August, Mango entered business rescue and suspended flight operations and have yet to recommence flying. I mean, what we're now seeing is that as we, re- as we emerge out of the, our third wave and the lockdown restrictions ease, passengers are again starting to feel more comfortable seeing a rebound in aircraft movements into August and September, and flight numbers are back at 65% of 2019 levels. So the picture's pretty clear in South Africa. When restrictions and lockdowns are in place, there's a huge impact on the sector. When restrictions are light to touch, then people are desperate to start traveling again. So the problem is that forecasting and planning remains a huge challenge for the airlines because of the stop-start nature of waves and lockdowns, their uncertain timing, but most importantly, the huge short-term impact that they have. In addition, beyond the airline's control, this constant specter and looming threat of restrictions also impacts on consumer confidence to book trips in advance. So most of the airlines are seeing a shortening in their booking profile when it comes to their customers, but starting to book a lot closer to their travel date than, than previously before the pandemic. So really, the airlines probably don't yet have the confidence to take their long-term decisions, and the industry will continue to remain in a bit of a limbo whilst this uncertainty prevails. So we have that sense of limbo right now. As you've just said, the world is opening to travel, but key economies are still very strict. It makes life difficult for South African travellers. And I'm suspecting, Bradley Gordon, that will continue into 2022. 
I think that's a very fair statement. I mean, as we currently see, you know, the key source market for South Africa is the UK. And as you've uh, discussed at length previously, South Africa does remain on their red list. But we have managed to make some big strides in this front in recent weeks and months. Much of the EU, and including Germany, France, and Switzerland, is allowing travel to and from South Africa. Very positive developments emerging for South Africans to places such as Mauritius and the Seychelles opening up. And very significantly, the US announcing that they will open for South Africans to travel during November. That being said, for travelers themselves, there's a lot of apprehension that the rules may change during their trip, and that could either curtail that trip or result in costly and lengthy quarantines. Um, And in addition, many businesses continue to either ban or discourage their staff from traveling. The overall impact for international travel in South Africa is is prodigious. In a normal year, we would see around six to six and a half million international arrivals through South African airports. During the hard lockdowns of 2020, this effectively reduced to nothing short of a trickle. And in 2021, we have seen a gradual recovery. But in the the first eight months of the year to August, we've seen 660,000 international air arrivals. So we still have a very long way off pre-COVID levels. The impact for this is huge for the aviation industry, not only for those selling international tickets, but also for those selling domestic tickets, as many tourists into South Africa would visit multiple cities and book multiple tickets. And the fact is those international travelers tend to earn the airlines much higher yields on their tickets than their local ones, as the flight component is often a small part of their much larger trip expense. So the airlines are missing out on both volume and yields, which is having a corresponding negative impact on profitability. Bradley, in conclusion then, let's talk about the future if we can. You you rightly say the rules are changing, things are very fluid right now, but what about looking towards 2022 and beyond, perhaps to a world where COVID is no longer prevalent, or at least a world where we've learnt in one way or another to live with the virus, Industries, many of them are emerging structurally altered. I'm wondering if you're seeing any significant change in dynamic in the aviation industry that maybe will even outlive the pandemic. In other words, look into that crystal ball of yours if you could. There's definitely some very interesting trends emerging, particularly when we look up north to Europe and North America, where COVID restrictions have largely been lifted. I think the overall arching theme is that the desire for people to travel has not diminished. And there does remain a huge pent-up demand for travel that we see every time that restrictions and border closures are lifted. Air travel does remain the fastest, most efficient way of bringing our world closer together, driving trade and economic growth, and allowing an effective functioning of the globalized economy. However, COVID has altered the reasons why people are choosing to travel. Current travel trends are very much dominated by leisure and tourism or visiting friends and relatives. It's business travel, which remains extremely muted, and the shift to working from home and using of digital platforms such as Zoom will definitely have some form of permanent structural change on business travel. But I don't believe it will eliminate it. I do expect that that structural change to be more pronounced in places like Europe or North America than in Africa, where face-to-face business interactions remains the key to success on the continent. But the long-lasting impact of the pandemic on business travel will be a key theme for the industry to watch in coming years. Another huge theme across this industry and many others is is ESG. Aviation is a carbon-emitting industry. Many airlines globally have used the pandemic as an opportunity to remove older and less efficient aircraft from their fleets, perform testing or integration of sustainable aviation fuel blends into their operations, and review their route network so they can emerge from the pandemic as leaner, more modern operations with with a far reduced carbon footprint. 
And that's where we're going to leave it on No Ordinary Wednesday. Bradley Gordon, thank you very much for navigating us on a particularly difficult flight path, both now and in the future. Head of Investec Aviation Finance for Africa. Thanks very much, Jeremy. In every episode of No Ordinary Wednesday, we pick a question about the world of money that's been on our listeners' minds, and we do our very best to answer it. If you've got such a question, just go to investec.com forward slash now. That's investec.com forward slash N-O-W, and share your conundrum with us. In the hot seat this week is Investec UK Chief Economist Phil Shaw. Phil, a very warm welcome to you. Now, Chinese real estate conglomerate Evergrande recently missing a deadline to pay dollar bond interest and it appears to be teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. Now this is in a nation where real estate counts for around 30% of GDP. The company employs some 200,000 people, has 1,300 projects in 280 cities in China, debt to the tune of $300 billion. For many, the specter of such a giant lender toppling evokes painful memories of the fall of Lehman Brothers, which triggered the 2008 financial crisis. And so our burning question, will the Chinese government allow Evergrande to collapse? And if so, what would the knock-on effects in China, the region, and the global economy be? Phil, let's start with this. What's the latest state of play? Where we appear to have left the situation is that Evergrande does not seem to have honoured an $80 million international bond coupon payment last Thursday. Um, That doesn't automatically put it into a default. It actually has a 30-day grace period. And I guess the company is using that few days to to try and sort out um, its cash flow and the general situation. Now, there is another coupon payments due in mid-October. And realistically, it's looking very difficult to see how Evergrande is going to meet these obligations. Now, in the meantime, we don't know exactly what the Chinese authorities have in mind. But one of the factors is that Beijing has apparently requested local authorities and government state-owned enterprises to help with the situation. And one has to remember that the background is one where the property market is slowing. Uh, there's much overcapacity in certain areas. And you know, as well as the, the direct employment of the company, I mean, that's about 200,000 people. It's got 1,300 projects in 280 cities in the country, $300 billion worth of debt, but also a long list of households that uh, have put down deposits on as yet unbuilt and unsold properties and which are also Evergrande's liabilities. So um, there is an awful lot to sort it out and a very complex background. And how then should investors be thinking about this issue as it continues to unfold? Well, indeed, I think investors are are perhaps a little bit more relaxed than they were uh, a week ago. But the the feeling very much is that Evergrande is unviable as an entity in itself. And realistically, there's a general suspicion that we're going to see the power of the Chinese state and Beijing flexing its muscles and stepping in. Now, really, the key for investors is precisely how Beijing is going to step in. Uh, It does need to protect its domestic interests. I I mentioned about the households that are creditors, for example, to Evergrande. And also, it has to prevent a a sharp 
economic slowdown which could occur if we saw a very radical restructuring of Evergrande and, you know, in the ultimate, um, letting it fail as the US authorities let Lehman Brothers fail in 2008. So, you know, perhaps one thing that the, the Chinese authorities could do is restructure the ownership, um, i.e. taking over itself, you know, perhaps a debt to equity swap. Um, certainly taking steps against senior management looks to be on the cards as well. And from the hot seat of an investor, you'd have to then think about which other Chinese property companies are vulnerable. There are reports that you know, perhaps another half a dozen or so Chinese property companies are having trouble accessing capital. So, again, the Lehman Brothers comparison is that this is not a single um, company that we have to deal with here, that there are a string of entities which perhaps may need to be dealt with. At this particular stage, we we don't know. But certainly, in terms of senior Chinese government figures, the mantra of housing is for living in, not speculation, is, is certainly a relevant one. Are there lessons, I wonder, for regulators? Well, well very much so. Uh, in, in Beijing, certainly we've had the feeling that there's been a conflict in terms of encouraging firms to act responsibly and reducing the frothy or, if you like, speculative, speculative element of their activities with the, the need to grow the economy. And housing is a key plank in terms of activity in China, as, as we all know. The wider lesson, perhaps, for regulators is as if they needed reminding of how important the financial sector is in terms of allowing the real sector, the economic sectors, to flourish as well. And, and certain economies have developed a macro prudential framework, uh, which is designed to, to keep the, the financial sector safe in terms of the implications of weakness there and shielding the economy from, from any nuances um, occurring in the financial sector or knock-on effects to the financial sector if, if a for example, a property company goes under. So, yes, uh, I think in this day and age, there are always lessons for regulators, aren't there? Full sure. I want to move from real estate, if we can, to technology. We also know in China that the country is rolling out strict regulations on tech companies. What sort of impact do you foresee? Yeah, we, we, we do know about Chinese authorities' deep dive on large companies, including the tech sector. Um, it was also responsible for enacting stricter policies on the property sector a year or so ago. It really is putting some pressure, we think, on the pace of growth in the Chinese economy. And from what seems to be a very impressive recovery from the COVID crisis early in 2020, it does look as if the Chinese economy has run into a few speed bumps over recent months. And what's happening with Evergrande really isn't helping. And, you know, it goes back to the point I think I made a little bit earlier, which is that there does seem to be a trade-off between letting the economy grow quickly and introducing regulation to keep the economy safe in the medium to long term. I'm going to leave it there. Full show at Vestec UK Chief Economist. Thank you for joining us on No Ordinary Wednesday. My pleasure. And that brings us to the end of this episode of No Ordinary Wednesday. Please join us again on the 13th of October as we continue our discussion on money trends shaping your world. We've lined up another great panel of experts. If you haven't yet subscribed, search for Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts and please hit that subscriber button. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs and the Focus Radio team. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.